You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. Good morning to every single listener of Eusebius on Times Live. It's rather chilly in Gauteng on this Friday morning, the 14th of April. And I think that um, summer has come to an end. It's now one of those days where even when it looks bright and sunny, if you go into the shade, it very quickly feels quite cold. And I think that's because the seasons are now changing. I was trying to reflect as I'm sitting in my library what one of the most important stories are that I can comment on as we resume our relationship on this podcast series now that Easter has come and gone. And I was trying extremely hard intentionally to avoid a podcast entry on the story of Nandipa and Tabo, now so infamous that I don't even need to say any surnames. For you to know as a South African listener what it is that I'm referring to, maybe even internationally. Uh, the Guardian, CNN, and many major international platforms have been covering this incredible story of improbabilities. But I can't avoid the story because it is ubiquitous. And in a sense, if you avoid talking about the story, you'd be trying exceptionally hard to be the exception to the news rule. And although there are a lot of other stories that we could and should and will deep dive into, from the investment summit where the president again rhetorically wants to convince us that all will be okay and South Africa continues to be open for business, notwithstanding energy insecurity, or whether we examine the ongoing crises at local government level where you blink and there's a new mayor or speaker of council that had been elected. It's very easy, even as a news hound, to fail a general knowledge test these days about who is in charge of South Africa's municipalities. And yet, these are the areas of governance that are at the coalface of service delivery and therefore we should keep tabs on them. And then there are stories that I'm quietly working on, both from a reportage point of view and an analysis point of view, that I almost overexcitedly want to bring to you prematurely, but I know that as someone who's experienced enough in media, I've got to wait until they are ready and that all my I's have been dotted and my T's have been crossed. And then there are systemic issues that continue to be of news interests and in some ways more important to your life than that of two fugitives. But the story of Nandipa and Tabo can't be avoided. And so I thought, let me get it out of my system and just honestly reflect on five, not so much lessons, but five sets of thoughts that I want to chew on and hope that you might find these useful. And then I'll leave it there, and then next week, hopefully, even though the story is going to continue to grow legs, and there are many missing parts of the puzzle that have to be filled out, that will have space 
to get back to some of the big South African questions that are the more important determinants of the quality of our lives going forward. But let me get on with the first of the five sets of thoughts this morning as I'm sipping my coffee that I wanted to work through with you. The first is what I call unearned privileges. I am not going to say too much about this. I want to cross-reference a small three-minute video I had uploaded onto TikTok. Now, I'm new to TikTok. You might, like me, be a skeptic about TikTok. I have found that TikTok is actually quite interesting. That's a conversation for another day. And that it's not all about dance challenges and frivolity, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's also like Twitter, like podcasts, like Facebook, a space where it's a case of you find what you want to find, you do with it what you want to do with it. And I had uploaded a video in which I had explained the dangers of unearned privileges and pretty privilege in particular in relation to Dr. Nandipa Mahudunmane and also to Tabo Bester. And I want you to go and have a look at that if you are on TikTok. But if you are a skeptic, I want to summarize in less than one minute the key thought, the detail you can find there. And the key thought is the following. It's amazing to me how many people have responded both to Nandipa and to Tabo, but in particular to her, on an shame type of basis. It is such a shame that someone so accomplished, educated, with so much to live for, so beautiful, beautiful children, wonderful family, great businesswoman, should find herself in this situation. It's just a tragedy. Or she was a victim of someone who's really good at seducing women. And I think we respond to that in part, and I say in part because I'm leaving room for sheer humanity on our part, but in part because she is beautiful and attractive and charming, as is Tabo. And I think when we talk about unearned privileges, we talk about the obvious ones, racialized privileges, gender privilege, as in male privilege specifically. Those are the two obvious and dominant kinds of unearned privileges in the world. But any trait can be the basis socially for unearned privilege. And one of them that we have started to call out, but we haven't really publicly in a massive way drilled down into it, is the unearned privilege that comes with meeting the dominant social idea of what counts in a particular society as being attractive. As someone said to me on my TikTok account, despite having an MBA, despite having gone to Oxford and being an alumnus, not that those phrases in turn mean that you cannot be evil, that nevertheless, a lot of people assume him to be a walking criminal because of a massive scar on his face. And that scar often leads to assumptions of a lack of trust that should be presumed to go with his body and person until he's got receipts to the contrary. Now, the flip side is that if someone is attractive, that they can literally get away with murder. And that is the unearned privilege that is attached to certain aesthetics. 
And I think that Dr. Nandipa gets a disproportionate amount of empathy, sympathy, as a result of her looks. I think the same goes for Tabo. And in fact, I think when deeper research is done about the making of his early crimes before he'd even met Dr. Nandipa, undoubtedly, a massive part of how he had come to persuade so many young women to meet up with him will be not just on the basis of their aspirations and dreams to become models, for example, but also the sheer conviction that comes with being charming, a smooth talker, good-looking, and therefore with presumptive trust. We don't extend that kind of generosity to someone that doesn't meet a particular society's ideas of what it means to be charming and good-looking. If someone looks, quote-unquote, ugly, and I'm not saying that there is a fixed idea of what's being ugly, but we got to be we can't be disingenuous we do have tropes in our society of what it means to be good looking and they are socially constructed but they're no less dominant because they are constructions and so for example if someone is living under conditions of poverty they are dark skinned inarticulate we do not have a presumption of trust and they are not the first candidates for massive amounts of public sympathy so for me, the first interesting theme around the story is the unearned pretty privilege that is being enjoyed by the protagonists. The second theme I wanted to speak to is really elementary, but sometimes elementary points I brought in to make. The fact that so much energy has been spent on the part of the state to make sure that they do their darndest now that the story has embarrassed the state to very quickly or as quickly as possible get these people arrested as they were making their way across the border into Tanzania and were eventually nabbed 10 kilometers from the Kenyan border. We mustn't be fooled. I mean, the Minister of Police, Bekik Trele, for example, had said that, you know, he's got faith in the police or more faith in them than he had before, and he was laughing with joy at the presser where they had announced that these two had been arrested by police in Tanzania. And again, of course, the hastily arranged 8 o'clock presser at which they then announced that they have also now been brought back to South Africa after obviously having violated immigration laws in Tanzania, was a press conference that was almost seen as a celebration on the part of government for how relatively efficiently they have managed to return these two and making sure that they will now face the music again. But here's the problem. The systemic issues within our criminal justice value chain do not go away and aren't solved for just because you spend a hell of a lot of resources on a single case. And here, there's a number of points that I want to make. Five, in fact. The first is 
that the historic questions of how this man could even escape prison as a convicted rapist and murderer, let alone fake his suicide that was not a suicide, and in the process implicate scores of officials and persons in a nexus of violent and vile crimes, those questions remain unanswered. And the fact that, as I speak, they are in the country and within police custody, that does not answer the thousand and one questions about how the story came about in the first place. So it's not, Minister Tlele, a victory for policing, for justice, or correctional service. The second point to make is that, from a systemic point of view, related to the first, corruption within policing and correctional services remain rampant. This case illuminates the worst of the inefficiencies and the criminality and the lack of ethics within policing and correctional services. And nabbing two persons on the run after spending a disproportionate amount of state resources, diplomatically, financial and otherwise, on this individual case does not change the pattern. Patterns and structures do not disappear because you've dealt with one individual case. And so again, we are not fooled. Policing and correctional services haven't been fixed just because this particular case is one where you can call a press conference and say, they are back. One is going to Bloemfontein and the other one is going to Twana as we speak. And you've got a couple of pictures of Anyala or a fancy combi. I think it was a BMW one actually, or Merck that is ferrying off one individual implicated in crimes. What about the thousands of people? What about the number of South African victims yesterday who were victims of rape in South Africa that is rampant? Murder that makes us one of the most violent countries on planet Earth outside of war zones. Those systemic issues are not dealt with. And it's very important that we recognize that. The third systemic issue that is not dealt with by this case is the reality of porous borders. It is all too easy to leave and enter South Africa, which is why these two knew that they had good odds of being able to flee the country and just drive away. Where is the quality of security when it comes to making sure that our ports of entry and exit are properly guarded so that you have very little odds of getting away once it is known and everyone within the security cluster is alerted, including the public, that so-and-so are on the run. I mean, their faces had become well-recognized within days of the story becoming massive after ground up the brilliant non-mainstream news platform had managed to break the back of the story. 
And yet, despite that, they managed to get away because South Africa's borders are porous. And that's a systemic issue that this individual case that not, does not solve for. And I think it's important that we recognize that. The third systemic issue relates to the first one. And, and that is to say, or, or the fourth one rather, that is to say that the lack of ethics in public service and servants is something we need to continue to pay attention to. You know, this government is very good at coming up with slogans like the Batopele principles, much punted over the last 10 years. And this is the idea that values like Ubuntu should infuse the work that is done by public servants in South Africa. Well, where the hell is that if an official is corrupted so easily? And not just one official, but many and an entire system is corrupted. There's absolutely nothing that screams Ubuntu Batopele in the behavior of home affairs officials that can be easily manipulated, police men and women, or those who are supposed to be guarding inmates. Absolutely no evidence there that there is a coincidence of technocratic excellence and ethics and principles guiding the work that is done by those who are in incredibly important positions in relation to the first duty of the state, which is to make sure that it keeps you and I safe. And I think that's a systemic issue that we need to pay attention to. And then lastly, identity theft. I mean, this is a story of, of many things, and one of the many things is identity theft. And we chuckle at our peril and how many different names and identities Tabo has. I'm not even sure if Tabo is Tabo, whether Mr. Bester is Mr. Bester. And there are massive questions unanswered about who this person actually is, notwithstanding relatives, self-styled, one now has to add, claiming to be siblings, parents, forgotten, related to him. And it's been all too easy to travel with multiple identities and passports on both of their parts, none deeper included. That's not surprising to you and me as ordinary citizens of this country, because we're all too aware of how easy identity theft is to commit in this country. So, to summate the second big theme, calling press conferences... It's fine to update us on what's happened in this individual case, but the systemic issues in policing, correctional services, porous borders, the lack of ethics in public service, crimes like identity theft, plus massive questions related to this case prior to nabbing these two 10 kilometers from the Kenyan border, none of those issues are dealt with just because you now have these two being looked after by the South African state, with charges being brought anew. The third theme I wanted to deal with is one that I probably should have started with. Where are the victims in the story? And this is as much a critique of your curiosity as the public, but perhaps first and foremost of myself as a media practitioner and my colleagues, fellow journalists, news editors, editors-in-chief. We are so fascinated by the second-by-second -second story 
of these two on the run and now of the crime that they are being held accountable for in terms of the criminal justice system, we have forgotten to put the spotlight on the victims and survivors of their criminality. There's very little, so far as I can tell, and I would be delighted if you can very quickly send me links that disprove me, incredible journalism that have tried to make sense of, for example, what does that tag say on the toe of the body that allegedly Nandipa had stolen, the corpse, and thrown into a river so that one can perhaps begin to make sense of potentially the identity of that corpse and the family that had lost a loved one whose corpse had now been desecrated. What about the many victims of rape that had survived? There have been one or two interviews of near victims that have told their story, and I've read some of those, but they've been on the margins of the telling of the story. And I think that's an injustice that we need to reflect on journalistically from an ethics point of view, a news selection point of view. But also you are not innocent as the readers, the listeners and the viewers because your demand for certain angles also drive the choices that news editors make. I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship. We sometimes try and impose certain angles on you and hope that you run with it commercially, discursively. But we also take our cue from what it is that you are desperate to hear more of. And many of you if you're honest about it, have a deeper fascination with who is this Nandipa person? Who is her husband that she divorced? You probably could sooner listen to a 60-minute interview with him than, if you're honest, a 60-minute interview with the family of one of the victims about how their lives had been affected as a consequence of their daughter being murdered or raped. And so I think it's really important that we ask ourselves what more can we and should we do and what does it say of ourselves, ethically and otherwise, that the victims are being rendered invisible. The fourth theme that I think is really interesting is amplifying accountability is so important when there's wrongdoing in society. And here there's a good news element to this story. I think the parliamentary committee doing oversight work has been absolutely stunning and a good example of when Parliament gets it right. We're so used to Parliament being dominated by ANC backbenchers who are useless, unethical, and simply serve at the behest of deployment committees that tell them what to do and not to do in propping up the executive, that we don't routinely get exposed to committees that are unified in asking great questions. Obviously, there are exceptions, both as committees, but also as, as individuals. And one could write a couple of books about post-apartheid South African parliament heroes when it comes to MPs and certain committees, right? But it's been really fantastic to see all the members asking fantastic questions, including of Judge Edwin Cameron who is a hero in this story, but who also had to answer some really tough questions around the correspondence between 
the Judicial Inspectorate of Correctional Services and the Ministry and whether or not there was sufficient blunt detail to do more than a cursory nudge to get the Minister to take this seriously as a story of something having gone awry at Mangalum Prison. And he is a hero in the story, but even he was asked appropriately some tough questions about whether or not he could have used more energetic language in that correspondence. But the best example of accountability in my mind was probably MP Glennis Breitenbach. With oh, all those checks and balances, all that security, how did he get out? I don't know, you said I keep on saying and passing the buck. Unfortunately, that's how it operates. The SAP are conducting the criminal investigation and we do a due diligence invest investigation into the operations. You don't the think that it's part of your responsibility to determine how a murderer and a serial rapist walked out of your prison? That's somebody else's responsibility. Get real. That exchange between Glennis Breitenbach and a representative of the security company G4S that is in charge of Mangahum Prison is an excellent example of, pardon the pun, taking no prisoners. How, how can you honestly sit there this morning and tell not, not me, not the people in this room, you're talking, I hope you understand, to the South African public who have an absolute direct interest in this matter. They have an interest in not having serial rapists and murderers running around the streets. And your job was to make sure that didn't happen. A job you failed at miserably. I mean, she was just amazing. I loved her tone. I loved the fact that she was impolite. This is no time to be euphemistic and to use careful language when so much taxpayers' money. This morning I saw a figure to the tune of around 45 million rand per month goes to this private company. And in that context, we deserve it to do good by the public. And you're telling me that a year and a bit later, the best you can say is you don't rule out the possibility that this, this was a, a well-planned, monumentally logistical operation. I mean, I have a German Shepherd puppy that can come to that conclusion. Our lives are less safe if inmates can escape that easily and that brazenly. And in that context, the accountability role that comes with being an MP is critically important. So kudos to the entire committee and to Glennis Breitenbach in particular. And then lastly, related to the fourth theme around accountability, I also think that this is an interesting story around the danger of privatizing state functions. The state has the duty to keep you and me secure. That's the first duty of any state. That's politics 101. In the detail of how it executes that duty, it then builds up certain institutions. Policing, criminal justice system, and eventually prisons. Now, there are massive debates the world over about prisons and whether or not prisons are good or bad whether they are inherently bad or just contingently bad, whether they can be improved on or never be improved on, whether they're anti-poor, anti-black, and amplify systemic inequalities in society, prison reform versus just getting rid of budgets for policing altogether. I mean, this is massive stuff in the USA in particular thematically, particularly after the Black Lives Matter movement had amplified 
inherent and systemic, not, not inherent, but systemic racism within policing and by extension within the criminal justice system and therefore also when it comes to prisons in the USA. And it's very interesting that in South Africa we often think the obvious solution to state inefficiency and state corruption is to run to the private sector. And you find commentary on this on a daily basis, including in our stable in Arena Holdings. There's this fetishizing of the private sector as if when someone is in a suit and they've got a BCom degree or business science degree, that they are intrinsically more ethical, more efficient, smarter, more committed to Batopela principles than someone who's hired into the state. And this story is yet another reminder to add on to the countless ones from the State Capture Commission of Inquiry that you can have public servants in cahoots with private players in the making of corruption. And just because you are outsourcing to the private sector a very important part of the state that is not functionally functioning optimally in the hands of the current government doesn't mean that you're going to get a better system. And I think for you and I as taxpayers and as citizens, this is a critically important lesson. Do not fetishize the private sector and make sure you hold anyone with power accountable for what they do, whether it is government or whether it is a private global security company. You appear to be saying you have no responsibilities. You've done what you could. Given bits of paper to other people and that's it. Wash your hands. Not at all. Well, that's the impression you create. And I want to tell you it's not good enough. <laughs>